Hey there, it's Phil Harwood. Just want to take a quick minute before we begin today's podcast episode and talk to you about our live and in-person events. We had three events scheduled for 2021. We've already had two of them. Our Inner Circle, sponsored by VentTrack event, was very well attended and was a great event. And uh, just recently, we had our Forum for Sales event, sponsored by SnowX, sold out. Uh, We had a great event there as well. We have one more event coming up. It's called Grounds in Institutional Management. It's really focused on site um, issues, operations, engineering, equipment, everything having to do with with running a snow event and planning for events. This is going to be September 8th and 9th at Milton Cat in Milford, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. So we hope to see you there. Registration is open right now at snowfightersinstitute.com. Welcome to the Snowfighters Institute podcast where we hear directly from some of the most interesting people in the professional snow and ice management industry. To learn about their successes, to hear about the challenges they faced along the way, and to have their perspective on critical issues facing our industry today. I'm your host, Phil Harwood. Before I introduce today's special guest, I'd like to invite you to follow our social media feeds And check out our upcoming events at snowfightersinstitute.com. Hey, I'm very pleased to have as our special guest today, snow industry legend and founder of the Snow Fighters Institute, John Allen. John, thank you so much for taking time out to be with us today. I know you're a busy man. Um, You know, your willingness to share a little bit of your story with us and just some of your thoughts about the professional snow and ice management industry. Um, Uh, I appreciate you asking me. Absolutely. You know, in in preparation for this, just kind of thinking about, you know, having you come on here and have this conversation. Um, I just, just the recognition that you've had such an interesting career spanning decades, right? Um, I don't even know how many decades Um, encompassing some of the, probably every aspect of the snow industry. And so just, just fascinating to think about what you've done in your career. And I can imagine um, you have uh, all kinds of thoughts about that, that are, that are going through your mind that you want to share with us today. So we're excited to hear from you. Um, I'm assuming some of you don't know who John Allen is. um, And I'm assuming some of you know John personally and everything in between. So kind of for the sake of someone new to the industry, someone who may not know your background, I just want to take a minute and list off some of the um, highlights of your career as far as I know, and maybe there's some things that I'm going to miss here, but um, some of the things that just, just stand out to me when I think about who John Allen is. First and foremost, you're the real deal. Um, you ran a snowplow company in one of the snowiest markets in, in the U.S., Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, you were uh, one of the founders of SIMA, the Snow and Ice Management Association, along with a group of uh, some other industry icons. Uh, You pioneered uh, really the first national snow service provider model um, in the U.S., as far as I know. Um, You provided snow services for the 20, 
2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, you were the owner or investor in several different technology firms in the snow industry. Uh, you've been a longtime industry consultant in the snow industry. You're expert witness. I believe you're still doing some of that today. And and maybe I should just keep going and, and the rest of the whole podcast will be just <laughs> listing off John Allen accomplishments. But um, um, pretty crazy, John. What do you What are your thoughts about the career you've had? Um, well, I've been very, very fortunate. I actually started 52 years ago. Um, wow. I started plowing snow in 1967. Uh, I was uh, working in my father's snow plowing business back in New Jersey. Uh, I, I started out as um, the guy in the truck <clears throat> who had to jump out and pull the pin and move the plow. That's back before mm-hmm. hydraulics. I and, remember. Uh, the uh, and now you're dating yourself. The uh, the uh, my dad thought that was a way to get me started, and I I loved it. I wanted to go out and work with him, and um, you know I was uh, gosh I was 14, 13 or fourteen at the time. I thought I was hot stuff, and then uh, after doing that for a storm, I figured there got to be something better, and uh, uh, so I graduated to the sidewalk crew, and worked outdoors the next winter. Uh, shoveling sidewalks, realized that that was probably not, you know, the career I was looking for. And then from there, uh, I went behind the wheel of the truck, graduated high school in 71, went to Erie, Pennsylvania um, to play soccer and ice hockey in college. Stayed here after after school. I started uh, the, I started my snowplowing business in uh, 77. And the uh, uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And uh, I didn't, I love, I love being in a truck. I love plowing snow. I, I wanted to continue doing it. Um, and uh, I had a job as a salesman and started, you know, the, the business was plowing snow like a lot of guys on the side in the winter. And then it grew from there. I was a salesman. I kept selling new accounts. And in 82, uh, my boss came to me and said, you got to decide who you're going to work for because it would snow in Erie. And as you know, Phil, we get several hundred inches of snow here. Mm. And uh, it just started snowing on Monday and I'd come back to work the following Monday. And he finally said, you got to decide who you're going to work for. So I, it was, the gentleman was very uh, open with his business and taught me a lot about running a business. Um, And I took my, my, uh, my books into him at that point and showed him what I was making. And he's going through the books. He looks at it and he says, wow, is this what you're making in a season? I said, no, that's what I make in a week. And <laughs> he said, no, you, you, you gotta go. This is, this is a business. Mm-hmm. And um, so I quit my job um, and started doing landscape work in 84. A lot of people started out doing landscape maintenance and then went to plowing snow. I did it just the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, we start plowing snow here in Erie sometimes uh, in October. Oh, sure. We can go till April. Um, yeah, you need something to do in the summer. Yeah, that was it. I needed to keep the people working. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was, uh, it, it grew from there. And uh, I, I never, it never dawned on me or occurred to me that, that we would be um, staying in Erie all the time. We were going to. We were going to grow. There was no doubt about it. Um, Peggy and I got married in 85 and she came into the business full time uh, right around 1990. 
in 92, this is probably one of the interesting things. In 92, I went to, I went to a show in Lansing, Michigan that was about snow plowing. And uh, I was shocked to find out that uh, not everybody got snow like we did here in Erie. I was pretty naive. I thought everybody got 40 snowfalls in a year. And uh, I was surprised to find out that there were people that were actually making a living on, on plowing six and seven times in a season. So that was an eye opener for me. And, uh, I've, I've been very fortunate that uh, people at that point wanted to hear what it was like to deal with a three foot snowfall. And we get at least one of those a year. A couple of years yeah. ago, we got seven feet one time. And it's, a, it's a unique perspective and it just gained me a lot of notoriety and, and uh, mm -hmm. recognition. So uh, it, when we put together the uh, Snow and Ice Management Association in 96, it was easy to get people interested. I'd already spoken around, around the country quite a bit. Mm -hmm. and, Eight of us got together in the basement of my house, and um, the rest, as they say, is is history. Yeah, there had to have been a real hunger at that time for something because it really didn't exist, right? The professionalism didn't exist, the standards, the networking, the education it just wasn't there. No, um, and I firmly believe that the uh, industry was very, very fragmented at that point. There was no sophistication, and the eight of us that got together, we had no intentions of Simon growing to what it is today. Our intent was to try to become better business people. Mm -hmm. We want to learn about accounting. We want to learn about how to price and uh, how to schedule. And we, we really, those of us that were there, we really didn't have a lot of experience. Um, Kyle Hansen was in Minnesota and I couldn't figure out how to get past 50 vehicles. Uh, I was having a heck of a time with it. And Kyle at that point had 250. Wow. So we sat down and talked for uh, hours and hours about how to do things. He said, I, he's, I, I'm not accustomed to getting two foot snowfalls and we panic when we get them. And I said, well, this is what we do. And he told me what he did. And, and um, you know, there were guys like uh, another Jeff Tobar was there and, mm -hmm. and Jeff was uh, uh probably the most educated of all of us in the room. I mean, he was, you know, he's with a master's degree and, and uh, he knew a lot about business. So we learned a lot from him and, and that was why we got together and Simon just grew from there. Mm -hmm. How did you ever get in a position to land the Salt Lake City Olympics? <clears throat> when, when the uh, organizing committee contacted Simon and said that they were going to outsource uh, the snow and ice management, Simon put the word out and uh, I called and put my name on the list of people that were interested and there was a lot going on online in the various chat room forums at that point about people saying, well, I'm, I've got two trucks and I think I'll go out there and um, it, it ended up that there was around 120 people who put their name on the list to do the work and they were from all over the United States. And they, uh, through a series of phone interviews, they narrowed it down to 25 and they invited us out to a walkthrough and I went. Um, I was the only one of the group who showed up that actually wanted the entire project. Everybody else just wanted pieces of it. Really? Uh, well, if you think about it. It was too it, big. Yeah, I mean, you get a local guy who wants to do some plying for the Olympics and the Olympics demanded that they have your undivided attention for the entire winter season. And you get a local who's plowing 
seven or eight or 10 places and they want you to drop all those customers to cater to them. Can't and, do it. Yeah. You know, no, you couldn't do it because next year then you're out of business. So mm -hmm. uh, my focus was different because we were operating out of Erie. At that point, we were working in 13 states up and down the East Coast and I wanted the whole project. And that in itself is an hour right. story to you know, how it ended up sure. uh, getting there. But we were awarded the entire project and it ended up being um, very profitable, very beneficial. I learned a lot. Um, one of the things they did was they, uh, they wanted to visit our operation. They wanted to be sure that if I was going to be out in Salt Lake running the Olympic project, that somebody would run our snow climbing back on the East Coast so I didn't have to leave and go back and check things out. And mm. they actually interviewed Peggy and reviewed our operations. And Peggy ran the show back in Erie while I was out in Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. um, probably the, one, of the, one of the stories that most people aren't aware of is uh, – uh, I was going back and forth from Salt Lake after they awarded uh, the project. But just prior to that, uh, I had to go through a rather extensive FBI and Secret Service background check. And hmm. the uh, my neighbor came up to me one time when I was home and he goes, hey, uh, John, um, everything okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, why? Some suits uh, just stopped by. <laughs> yeah, we had some FBI people here asking questions about you, my next door neighbor. Um, I guess I said, it's not uh, a surprise when you step back and think about it. <laughs> and he, uh, I said, oh, no, no, it's, everything's fine. He goes, oh, right, okay. I said, yeah, everything's fine. Um, I'm being uh, considered for doing all the snow plowing at the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake, and, you know, we got to go through quite an extensive check. And um, so that was, it was funny. It wasn't really funny at the time, but it's funny now when we look back. Um, but it was, it, was, uh, it was rather intense. Yeah, I'll bet. You've also had um, some involvement with, you know, some co other technology companies like Snow Dragon, Crew Tracker. Are you still involved in those businesses? And what what is John Allen doing today? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Snow Dragon. Um, I was involved in Snow Dragon until 1999. I ran the company uh, after I sold uh, SMG. Uh, Snow Dragon had already been around for a couple of years by then, and it was owned by a public entity. Um, uh, I actually, I owned uh, a portion of it. it. My contribution to the entity was intellectual property. And I went to work at Snow Dragon in uh, 05. And I ran the show until 09 when I went out on my own. They're still around and they're doing well. Uh, the vast majority of their business is overseas. Um, most of my job while I was there was setting up the distribution uh, in other countries. I've been fortunate enough to have visited 36 different countries where it snows uh, nice. with Snow Dragon. Mm -hmm. And Snow Dragon still exists to this day. Um, we sold uh, Crew Tracker. Uh, if you're gonna, we're gonna have a little background noise here, Phil. It's okay. They blow off the, the front deck. Landscapers are here. I'll Matt, take John like Allen in any way, shape or form yeah. I can get him. Uh, they're, they're, they'll be gone. Um, so uh, I was a, an early investor in, in Crew Tracker and ended up uh, owning uh, with a partner uh, Crew Tracker software for about five years. Sold it last year. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, I'm getting older and I want to slow down a little bit. So I was trying to get rid of um, the distractions and uh, <clears throat> You know, I, 
I'm 67 and um, it's uh, working 14 hours a day was fun for you know a couple of decades, but it's not not my focus anymore. So I sold Crew Tracker uh, to a company in Cleveland who still operates it, mm-hmm. and they're doing well. And then, uh, of course, uh, you know about Snow Fighters. Of course, it was, uh, it was for the same reason. And I was contemplating um, just getting out and shutting it down. And you and Neil were uh, facilitating. Uh, at Snowfighters here in Erie, and we got into a conversation at one point, as I'm sure you remember. And mm-hmm. I, I told Neil that uh, I was thinking about you know, getting out, and you and he said, "Well, would you consider selling it?" And it didn't take us long to come to an arrangement. So, uh, and quite frankly, when you look at the stuff like you're doing right now with the podcast, and you guys have some fantastic ideas about how to make it get better. And I'm, you know, I was getting old and, you know, a little stodgy and uh, I'm kind of old school and I wasn't prepared for uh, emerging technology to help with uh, snow fighters in our educational processes. And you guys, you guys are full of ideas and, and I'm sure it's going to do a whole lot better in your hands than it would have in mine. I, I can only take it so far. Well, thank you. Or we're, we're excited to, to take it into the future, but um, kind of walk us back maybe 10 years ago ish when you, when you started snow fighters Institute, what, what was the need and, and how do you see that, that is that need still there? Uh, uh, you know, why, what, what, what was the gap that snow fighters Institute was filling and, and well, where, in, how does it fit in, in today? In 09, when I sold my interest in uh, Snow Dragon to the public entity that now owns 100% of it, um, I decided to uh, go out on my own, hang a shingle, do consulting work. And you know what that's like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to slow down with Snow Dragon. I was on the road about 20 days a month. And you know, one week I was going to Europe, the next week I was going to Asia. And while it sounds like fun, it is, you know, for a while. Uh, it's like people saying, boy, it's great to go to Russia. Yeah, the first time it was nice to go to Russia, but the next 10 times it was work. <laughs> sure. And uh, I started doing consulting work and I went from zero to 100 miles an hour in about two months. I was really shocked at how fast um, the consulting side of the business grew. And I was doing the same thing. I was on the road all the time. I was gone for two and three days at a crack every single week. And I, you know, I, it was going to kill me and I needed it to slow down. So Peggy and I got together, we talked about it. And I, you know, I said, we've, we, we've got to find a way to get people to come to me instead of me going all over the country. So we said, okay, uh, let's put together a, uh, a facility and bring contractors in and it'll be strictly education about snow and ice management. And we started that in 2010. We had our first class in 2011 and I was uh, surprisingly shocked. Uh, our very first class was, was full, over full, 20 some people. We could actually handle comfortably about oh, 16. And we- um, You had a full house. That's yeah, nice. I think we had 22 or 23. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it just kept going from there. Um, 
it, it actually backfired. I was doing it so I could slow down, but we'd get 25, 26 people come to a class and then afterwards they'd say, okay, you got to come to my place now. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, I was back on the road again and it was go, 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 go. It was fulfilling. It was rewarding. It was fun. We tried to make it a good experience for the contractors who came. Uh, and then they started sending their people to follow up classes and, um, you know, we wanted it to be a first class operation. We spent a lot of money putting the facility together and, you know, we took everybody to dinner. It was a group thing. We told the, the owners of the companies, if you send your salespeople to us, they will work. They will have homework. They will work at night. They will leave here with, um, a real education about, uh, the best ways to present themselves to customers with the idea that they should be the ones that the customers select to do their snow and ice management. You can't do that off the cuff. It takes a lot of practice. And, you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you of all people know. 100%. To yeah. be true. You know, salesmen aren't, aren't born, you know, they're made and it takes practice. And we push people to, um, an uncomfortable position. Uh, they didn't want to get up in front of a group and speak. And we forced them to do it. So, years and years and years ago, I went to a Dale Carnegie class and um, I didn't want to go. I hated it. I was, it, it was, it was excruciatingly painful and the best class I ever went to. And um, so we use that philosophy as our modus operandi to yeah uh, stretch people get them uncomfortable yep also you know i've I've been to enough of the snow fighters institutes you know uh, events where it's also a lot of fun and it's really good networking it's it's a real nice um time to just really get deep into something and you know i've been to hundreds of conferences and so have you and you know um there's only so much you can retain but when you get into a deep dive scenario like that, you can really learn something. So we're really, just really grateful for, um, you, you know, the effort that you and Peggy put into Snowfighters to get it to where, where it is today. And we're super excited to take it into the future. So what are you doing with your time now, John? Are you, are you retired? Are you still doing expert witness work? What are you doing? Well, uh, I am doing expert witness work and that has grown steadily. I've, done, I've been doing it now for 23 uh, years. And it has grown uh, steadily, especially in the last five or six years. It's all word of mouth. We don't do any advertising. Uh, I, I have an associate that um, works with me doing cases uh, alongside me, and that's uh, Lisa Rose. And um, Lisa uh, has 30 years in the business. She was the operations manager for Snow Management Group. And she managed essentially um, $40 million worth of work with 4,500 service providers and 5,000 sites. And uh, she had a staff of 300 and she, uh, she has uh, uh, 30 years experience in it. She started out uh, working for us, uh, dispatching when we were just working in Erie, Pennsylvania. So she's got a lot of experience. Nice. And, uh, we are fortunate that we've developed quite a following in the legal community and we currently have cases, uh, ongoing cases in, oh, about 25 states. Okay. And, uh, that's, that's a full-time job for me. Sure. And I do a slight bit of consulting work. I'm really selective in what I do. The last big consulting job I took on was uh, a year ago 
with a um, solar panel uh, entity, uh, the largest solar energy corporation on the planet put together. Okay. They put a they put a 500 acre field in Ishikawa, Japan, and uh, did not realize that Ishikawa, Japan gets six feet of snow. Oh my gosh! A month. <laughs> And uh, nobody, nobody had any plans for how to get rid of the snow in between the solar panels. And the first year, first year, the snow piled up and did about $20 million worth of damage to the panels. But, and that was, I, I went to Japan for a couple of weeks. I, I really enjoyed that. That was a very interesting project. And now I only take on interesting projects. Wow, but, that's fascinating. Uh, the, uh, I get calls from a lot of contractors and I'm just not, that doesn't excite me anymore. Um, sure. So it's predominantly expert witness work. I do a lot of speaking, lecturing, things like this. Um, yeah. And I do it, I was doing it to the uh, snow community, uh, into snow and ice management community for years and years, as, as you know. Mm-hmm. And um, the, uh, the focus has changed mostly to the legal community. And I get asked to speak in front of trial lawyer associations and defense lawyer stuff and, uh, the, uh, about snow and ice and how it, uh, how it's developed and you know, how they can do their jobs better, which mm-hmm. probably is not something that contractors want to hear about, but I do an awful lot of defense work for contractors. And, um, uh, and actually it's the lawyers that hire me and the contractors don't hire me for that. Correct. Right. Well, thank you for um, just kind of walking us through some of that with your career and your history. Um, so one of, one of my questions for you, John, and, and this is very much um, on my mind right now because a lot of my consulting work is is working with businesses that are transitioning to the next gen. So the 30-somethings or the 40-somethings are positioning themselves to take over companies that maybe their parents or even their grandparents started. Um, and so, so there's a big, big transition happening. And, and I think that'll continue, you know, all the demographics are, are showing that there's going to be a massive transition of leadership and ownership in businesses and in every industry, you know, as the baby boomers retire and the, the Gen Xers and the millennials kind of step up and take over. But I, what I see a lot is I see people who are really, um, Early, maybe earlier in their career or maybe early mid-career, they're very anxious. They're very um, sometimes frustrated that they're not further along. And, and so when I think of, so kind of I have two questions for you. One is um, at the beginning of your career, when you were that up and coming uh, person that was still trying to figure out what, like, did you have a master plan in your mind or did things kind of unfold over time with your career? So that's one question. Uh, the other question is um, what advice do you have for someone who is, you know, at the early part of their career still, they're, they're, they're not seeing what they want. Maybe some of their friends are further along and in terms of, you know, status and, and compensation and their career path. You know, I think of, some very successful people that we've read about that were in their thirties and just kind of weren't going anywhere. Right. Maybe they're working in a coffee shop and then, you know, 10 years later, they're making, you know, $20 million a year and some famous actor or, um, you know, they're on, they're doing something really amazing. Right. But, but they were in their early thirties and just kind of 
like not sure what was happening. So what advice do you have for people who are kind of thinking about their careers and they, they just don't know, you know, where to, where to go with their, with the next step. So kind of two big questions I'm going to throw at you here, John. Uh, I had no master plan, uh, but I am a risk taker. Okay. And it, it is, and I've been very, very fortunate to have a wife who was tolerant of that. The, uh, it, it, with the right partner, mm-hmm. uh, people can do anything. And I had a partner who, um, well, she didn't always encourage me to do things. She never actually put her foot down and said no. Um, she was against us doing the Olympics until I walked in and said, okay, I've been to the walkthrough here. We're going to do this. And then she gets uh, behind me and, and starts making stuff happen and make sure that I cross my T's and dot my I's. But uh, my success didn't really start to come until I was in my 40s. So uh, it is a it, it, many, many times I thought, boy, I wish I, wish I had known in my 30s what I know now. And it, it just didn't work that way. Um, so I think the people that are in their 30s that are, are trying to push success upon themselves, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, the right path. I think that when you see an opportunity, you should definitely jump for it because so many people see opportunities and they second guess themselves and say, wow, geez, I don't know. Gosh, I don't know if I can make this happen. Maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to hold off. And that becomes a little bit problematic from my perspective because we're, what, we're, what we get into at that point is, is that uh, we don't take that leap. I can't tell you how many times I felt like I was looking into the abyss mm-hmm. and then pulled myself back from it. So um, if you're a little bit of a risk taker and you don't mind taking chances, eh, it usually works out. I've always been under the philosophy that if it can't kill me, then I can probably do this. So that takes a little mm, intestinal fortitude. The, the uh, part about uh, a plan, no, I didn't have one. I just, I didn't shy away from opportunities when they presented themselves. Yeah, and I, most people don't. I don't, I, I haven't encountered someone who really did have some master plan, unless it was a very slow burn methodical master plan that, that played out, you know, sequentially and just over time, but, but really didn't go very far. Right. So I think, uh, you know, I have some friends who, you know, had the same job their whole career and yeah, that was the master plan, right? Like avoid all risk at all costs, just stay where you're at, hunker down and take your 2% pay raises every year and just be happy. And that's, and, and that's, that's a fine for the right person, but for you and me, certainly not. One um, of the but most of, people don't have that master plan. Sorry. One of the pieces of advice that I, that I give to um, entrepreneurs uh, starting out in our industry is to be careful what you wish for. Um, People have come up to me and said, geez, I'd like to have a company like back in the heyday of SMG. I'd like to have a company like you have, you know, you started Sima. You, you know, I'd like to have a career like you did. And I, and I tell them you can, you can have a career like that, but you've got to dedicate yourself to it. 
but you've got to give up the proms, mm-hmm. uh, got to give up graduation, got to give up the first steps, got to give up the first boyfriend, uh, girlfriend. Yeah, there's a the sacrifice. You, you betcha. I mean, mm-hmm. I gave up damn near everything. It, my, my children were in their 20s before we started talking to each other. It's just, if I could go back and do it over, would I do it differently? You betcha. The, uh, some of the most important things in our lives, we tend to put on the sidelines and, and say we can come back to that. And it's not really that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it takes a lot. So if you want to give up all that stuff, you can have a career really early on and uh, a, a successful career if, if that's what your desire is. But at the same time, if an opportunity presents itself, you have to know that you can go for it. When we got our first multi-state job, it was uh, with what is now, uh, geez, I don't even know what they are now. They were First Union Bank at the time and then they were sold to Wachovia and they jumped us into 13 states. Mm -hmm. They called me up and said, hey, can you handle all our snow plowing in 13 states? This is back in the late 90s. And nobody was doing that sort of thing. And I said, yeah, sure. And then I went back to the office and uh, sat down with Peggy and my team and said, okay, we're going to do this. We got to figure out how to do it. We had no clue what we were doing, none. And, uh, and we stumbled through it and we got through it. And then we found a formula at work and then that grew from there. So yeah. the Olympics was the same thing, Phil. Um, you know, I, people would come up to me and say, I don't understand how a small company from Erie, Pennsylvania can do the Olympic project. And I would look at them and I would say, that's okay. I'm all right with that. But <laughs> yeah, you don't need to know. Yeah. That's, that's some gutsy stuff, John. Well, it's the truth. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. Um, and I think the only thing to hold some people back from actually achieving their dreams is themselves. Well, let's talk about that. What was, you know, like you said, staring at the abyss, uh, these uh, kind of out of the box opportunities that really took some, you know, some some hope and faith, <laughs> some guts to to jump on them. There's a lot of challenge in in those things, and you know, a lot of our learning comes from dealing with challenges and and struggles and even sometimes failures. Is there a a challenge that stands out to you that you had to overcome that was really significant that maybe shaped you in a certain way? Um, when I went to college, I had my first beer and then I didn't stop. And 35 years ago, just as I got married, I was a problem drinker and I quit 35 years ago, cold turkey. And I just made up my mind one morning that this was ruining me and I had to stop drinking and I haven't had a drop in Hmm. 35 years. Um, It's not difficult now, but at the time it was a a huge challenge. Um, I was gonna lose my wife and I was probably gonna lose my business. And if you went back over my revenues uh, since we started the business and you can actually, I, you can pinpoint on the graph when I stopped drinking and uh, I started thinking clearly. 
uh, other things became important rather than when I was going to get my next drink. And you know, my the proudest thing that I have done in my career is uh, giving up drinking. That's, wow. that's the most important thing that's ever happened to me. You know, I had never heard that story, John. <laughs> well, I don't, <clears throat> I don't share it with a lot of people. Sure, but, you just did. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the uh, uh, that was that was probably the hardest thing to do, and my mother was extremely proud of me. Um, Peggy uh, stayed by me because of it, and uh, everything I have today is is because of of that day that I. Um, it was uh, it was a day when I said I'm done, and I actually went uh, went to one of the local hospitals and and check myself in for a 30 day stint and never, never went back to it. Was there some event that <clears throat> triggered that? How did you come to that realization that you needed to just go cold Turkey and walk away from that? Well, I remember the moment when I made the decision, um, I was up in the middle of the night and, uh, uh had shakes and really wanted a drink and couldn't find it. And I sat down and I, and I just said, this is a problem. Hmm. Uh, it's time to stop. So the next day I called down to, they had a, a, a program here in Erie at one of the hospitals. And I called them and I said, uh, I need to, I need to stop drinking. And it was um, Easter, just before Easter weekend, like, you know, Thursday before Easter weekend. And um, uh, the, uh, the lady says, well, can you come down on Tuesday? I said, if I wait until Tuesday, I'll never stop drinking. They said, come down today. So uh, we drove down to the hospital and Peggy dropped me off. Um, and it was a difficult thing for her to do. And I, I went in, came out sober and never, uh, never went back. I remember the time. Was there an incident? Was there a series of incidents? Was there something that was a wake-up call? sitting in my living room thinking where is there something that I can drink and there wasn't anything mm. that was that was the point in time sobering moment uh, at, <laughs> literally <laughs> literally thank well thank you for sharing that John um, I want to kind of fast forward to today yeah. um, current state of the industry snow and ice management industry um, kind of what do you how do you um, comment on the state of the industry today? What are some things that you, you know, if you had the chance to talk to, as you do here through this platform, you have the chance to talk to some contractors, some service providers. What are some important things you feel like um, are trends in the industry that they should be mindful of? And, and I'm also kind of curious about your take on um, getting involved in legislative affairs locally or state level or even national level whether that's through associations or through peer groups or networking groups or whatever, kind of what, where's the industry today? I think there are goods and bads. The good is that the industry has become considerably more savvy business-wise. Mm -hmm. It used to be when I first started speaking on a regular basis around the country that I would ask how many people in the audience were college educated and, and 10 or 12% of the people would put their hands up. Now it's closer to 70%. Uh, the, not the college makes you a good snow industry person, but the idea that um, you've become educated about business, uh, about accounting. And back when I uh, was starting out in the 70s, um, we were very, very unsophisticated as a group. 
Sima, I think, is probably um, the first indication that the industry was going to get serious about becoming sophisticated. And then ASCA came along um, probably 15 years later and added to that. The, the, um, the contractor today is considerably more educated than they were in the past, but amazingly enough, there's still a lot of ignorant contractors out there. They don't believe they have to document. They don't believe they have to uh, write things down. They don't believe that they've got to keep track of what they're doing. They, um, the, the sales acumen amongst a lot of people is not what it should be, um, although it's so much better than it was 30 years ago. With that sophistication, though, has come some drawbacks. As the contractors became more sophisticated, then um, the legal system became more sophisticated in finding out that contractors, as they became sophisticated, had to keep track of what they were doing, and it, it became a source of revenue to the lawyers for slip and fall claims. Mm-hmm. Say what you will about attorneys, but they're there. We've got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have kept us all on the straight and narrow when it comes to becoming educated. The uneducated contractor is wide open for mm-hmm. liability claims. Yeah, so exposed. Uh, it is. The exposure is phenomenal, and these people don't realize it. And I have actually read depositions. I read hundreds of depositions a month. And I've read depositions from contractors who are, they don't realize how ignorant they sound. You know, I've been at this for 40 years, and there's nothing anybody can teach me about the snow business. Mm-hmm. And these are the same guys. And he says, well, did you, did you write down what you did? No, I kept it all in my head. I mm-hmm. must have done this, and I must have done it. Just... Wow. It's embarrassing. Yeah. And interestingly enough, while it does happen that I do get cases about contractors who are SIMA members and ASCA members and obviously educate themselves, uh, generally it's because they just had a bad experience uh, on a particular day. As a rule, uh, gen- or not as a rule, but generally speaking, uh, I don't see many cases uh, from contractors who are educated. Mm-hmm. both plaintiff and defense. The, uh, so the industry is considerably more sophisticated all the way around. The insurance industry has become much more sophisticated about the snow business. Uh, the margins have tightened up because of it, because as people get smarter and more efficient and faster at what they do, they pass on the savings to the customers in order to make themselves more competitive. And you know, the, the, uh, uh, the uneducated portion of the industry uh, claims that those people are low ballers. They're, they're, they're not low ballers. They've, some of these people know exactly what it costs them to plow a parking lot. Yes. And <clears throat> they know what margin they got to make in order to be viable. It, it, it's, it's grown so much from an education standpoint that the, uh, the business is now a viable business before it was just a uh, before meaning back when I got started, it was an unsophisticated bunch of yahoos who ran around pushing snow and charged a lot of money. Do you think it's still an attractive industry? Oh gosh, yes. Oh, there's so much going on in the industry behind the scenes. There's there's a, a massive amount of of uh, acquisition that's going on, um, mm-hmm. roll ups that are starting. We're going to we're going to very soon, and I think within the, within a decade, we're going to see a public Snow and Ice Management Company. Um, 
they're going to, the, those people are going to find other sources of revenue because that's just what business people do. And uh, they'll be closer to a Breckman um, than, uh, than a uh, Billy Bob. The, but I think we're going to see one or two public entities pop up. It, it, it's in the works. I can feel it from the stuff that mm -hmm. I hear. Well, I couldn't agree more. I love the snow industry. Uh, very profitable if it's if you're in the business doing it the right way. And and that's where all the education comes in, in the training and networking and Snowfires Institute. That's why Neil and I acquired the business um, and are excited about the future of it. Um, as you know, John, we're we're taking Snowfires on the road. Uh, we're pulling away from Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, we're going to be meeting uh, next year at for the Snowfighters events at um, at or near locations of our sponsors, and we're real excited about that model. What would you say to someone considering a Snowfighters attending a Snowfighters event? I think the opportunities presented to the contractors going forward. At, at obviously, this year is a little bit problematic because of all the COVID stuff, but. Uh, the opportunities presented to a snow contractor to interact with other snow contractors around the country uh, at the various forums that Snowfighters Institute has set up gives them the ability to find out that uh, they're not alone and they, there are others out there that are in the same boat they are. It's one of the amazing things about getting together with other snow contractors mm -hmm. is that you think you're the only one with this particular problem and you find out everybody's got the same problem and this is how some people solved it. And then you can educate yourself about how to go forward. Um, any, anybody who educates themselves in the chosen profession that they have uh, becomes uh, considerably more uh, attractive to a potential customer. And it, it, all this garbage that I hear about, wow, we can't compete with the low ballers and the Brickmans and the USMs and it, that's just, that's, that's bull. Uh, you can compete with them. You just have to find the level that you have and convince yourself that you can do it and then educate yourself so you can get there. And you meet some fascinating people at, at Snowfighters events. I remember the last one I was at, there were a group of three attendees sitting to my right and they kept huddling up and talking quietly and they, they kind of weren't engaging with the bigger group all that much, only when, when they were called on. Um, they were kind of keeping to themselves and it became really clear that they had something to hide in a way. They were trying to stay under the radar. And finally, you know, everyone kind of ganged up on them and said, all right, where are you guys from? <laughs> and I know you know this, but yeah. they were the grounds crew from, uh, from Camp David. And just, just really interesting people and certainly a very unique property. But, you know dealing with the same issues we are, same equipment, same type, you know, snows at Camp David, the same way it snows, you know, a mile away at a commercial parking lot. So um, just really fascinating to be able to interact with some of those people that you probably would never run into anywhere else, to be honest. The, uh, the very first uh, Snowfighters Institute class that we had was an inner circle and two people from radically different parts of the country became very good friends. One has grown his company to 20 million. The other one's grown his to 35. Hmm. Uh, they've been to each other's weddings. <laughs> uh, they, they go to each other's homes for vacations. 
um, they've developed a very long lasting friendship and it's been nice to witness and they both say it's because of Snow Fighters Institute that they've become so close and they've, and they've grown their companies. And it, it, that's not the only instance, it's the most yeah. uh, prominent one, that's but cool. it, it, it happens all the time. Yeah, that's cool. Well, John, we could probably talk all day, um, but I, we've, we've been at it a while. Why don't we uh, start to wrap things up here? I just want to give you a last chance to talk about anything that you wanted to kind of share with, with the audience here, anything that we didn't talk about yet today. I love the snow industry. It's been very good to me. I've had ups, I've had downs. Um, I've, been through, I've been through some great times. I've been through some tough times, but all in all, I think the snow industry affords uh, a good number of people the opportunity to become very well off, to make a mark in the industry, uh, to make a mark in the business side of the world. We're no longer thought of as guys that can't find real jobs. Um, we're, th we're thought of people who provide a necessary service that uh, uh, keeps people from dying at times and it's it, it is a uh, it's a niche business no doubt and i i love the industry and the people that i associate with also do yeah that's great well thank you john again so much for sharing your story with us and your thoughts and 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 really for all your contributions throughout it's just an amazing, very interesting career. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. God bless. Hope you have a great rest of the summer, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Snowfighters Institute podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, become a subscriber today so you won't miss any future episodes. And don't forget to check out our upcoming events at Snowfighters Institute. Dot com. Now go forth.